Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Great show for you today on episode 144. We have Brock Beard, who has been bringing up the rear with Last Car, on with us. A very interesting guy. Chat about his career and kind of what he does and why it is different, and different is good. Plus, we got a lot to talk about with Bristol Dirt, the finish with Kyle Busch winning barely over Tyler Reddick and the Bonsai slider gone wrong from Chase Briscoe. But before we do any of that, we got to pay homage to the number 44, and we do so, as always, with Papa Siegel's Wayback segment. I mentioned last week in the past couple weeks that there'd be a theme for the next month or so, and that theme continues today with another famous driver, the famous last name in the world of NASCAR. Who could it be? I guess we'll find out together. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 144. Texas Terry Labonte has the most starts and wins in car number 44. You remember that Piedmont Airlines livery, don't you? He won his first Winston Cup championship driving that car in 1984, but we already paid homage to Mama Siegel's favorite driver, when we discussed his run in the famous Car 11. Kachiga! So, that gives us the chance to continue our recent run of highlighting perhaps the most famous racing family in NASCAR. We discussed Lee Petty two weeks ago, and of course his son, the King, last week. So, this week, we dig a generation deeper and focus our way-back lens on Kyle Petty. Kyle ranks second on the all-time starts list for car 44. Remember that awesome Hot Wheels paint scheme he raced? Now that's a die cast I wouldn't mind you buying, Duve, but the small one, okay? You can even put it on my credit card. Kyle started 829 races, spanning 30 years, wow, and reached victory lane a total of eight times. Now look, no one's going to confuse Kyle with his father in terms of on-track accomplishments, but think about the onions it takes to follow your father's chosen career when his nickname is The King. And before you think Kyle should have been able to ride on his dad's coattails, consider that King Richard's 43 team wasn't what it once was when young Kyle was trying to make a name for himself. Kyle Petty's probably more well-known for his work as a racing commentator and his charitable work, including his annual charity motorcycle ride across America and the Victory Junction Camp for disabled and chronically ill kids, but more about the inspiration for that worthy cause another time, soon. That's all for this week, and, as Kyle would appreciate me saying, that's all I have to say about that. Back to you, Duve. Thank you, Dad, and thank you, Mom, for the kachiga. And thank you, Dad, again, 
Uh, if you really mean that, I will buy a Kyle Petty 164 diecast on your credit card. Happy early birthday. Happy early Hanukkah to me. Wow. So nice of you. Let's start off this episode as we always do with a good old fashioned. <laughs> and we will throw it straight over to our interview with Brock Beard, aka Last Car. You know him on Twitter as Last Car on Brock. And he has been providing coverage of the back half of the garage, the drivers, the teams that finish towards the back and last, a la last car, for over a decade now. We talked about kind of what sparked this idea in the first place, how he handles it, how he handles explaining the idea to people and sometimes drivers when he's trying to do his thing, make some content, and really do his job well in the sense of helping the teams. It's not out to get them. It's not trying to make fun of them or make light of their situation. They have a story to tell. It doesn't get told a lot, and he's the one that tells it better than anybody else. So we chat about that with him, how he handles that, how he goes about it, and he's a really smart guy. Not only is he a published author for one and about to be two books about NASCAR, his passion and love for the history of the sport, his following on YouTube and other forms of social media, how that has grown exponentially, and the fact that there is a big, big appetite and audience for people that finish towards the back of the field. He was a bit surprised about it, and he still kind of is when he sees all the outpouring of support for his content. Really interesting guy. Glad he gave me his time and shared his story with me. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Here's my conversation with Brock Beard, a.k.a. Last car. Pleasure to welcome on to the show this week a man that you most likely have seen on social media. You may have heard him. You may have seen him. You definitely should. And if you don't already, you will appreciate him, I hope, after today's chat. It is Last Car himself, Brock Beard, is on the show with us this week. Good morning to you, sir. Probably the earliest interview that I've ever done on your side of the country since you're on the west coast this is 8 a.m pacific time it is an early day for you brock oh no trouble at all thank you so much for having me on uh having me on absolutely i wanted to have you on because as you do you spotlight the back half of the garage and the people that may not get a ton of media coverage or publicity right everybody loves winners but not so much attention is paid to those in the back half of the garage or in your case the very very back of the garage. And I like to spotlight and hero some some people in the industry in a, in a little bit of a different way. And you do that to a T. And you've been doing it for now, I guess, over 10 years. So for a decade plus, you've been bringing up the rear, as you say, in Last Car <laughs> since yep. 2009. What sparked this idea for you to kind of spotlight the back half and the end of the garage in the first place all those years ago? Well, good question. You know, uh, I, probably the first, the start of it would be uh, my background in uh, going to the first ever race I ever went to was at the uh, the Sonoma Raceway or Sears Point as we still call it, uh, and going out to the races in 1992. You used to have a lot of different teams that, as a fan that was just getting to know the sport, I thought these teams were always at every single one of the races. But it turns out a lot of those were Winston West teams or uh, smaller underfunded organizations. And it made me that much more curious about them because they even back then they weren't really talked about that much. Uh, fast forward a few years, uh, we used to took uh, bus trips over to the track and we used to have a drawing uh, where everybody could pick a certain driver and win a gift certificate or something at the end of the day. 
and people would always be upset if they got a driver that was somebody that didn't have a chance at winning because only the right. winner would get one. Uh, so, uh, you know, and then uh, around the time we thought like, wait a minute, like who actually has the most like last place finishes? Because that's generally going to be probably a driver that uh, is at this end of the field. And, or, you know, I think it was about the same time we uh, came up with a last place prize. So if somebody drew the last place finisher in this drawing, they would still, I had like some, uh, some die casts on hand that I, I gave out for that. And that was about the same time that we figured out or that, uh, my brother and I uh, were both kind of kicking around the idea. Uh, and I just kind of went through racing reference and just dug up the stats. And it turned out JD McDuffie had the most at the time. Uh -huh. And of course I'd known about JD uh, a bit at that time. And it, it really kind of changed my perception of, you know, okay, well, somebody finished in last place i mean there's there's a story there and certainly with jd that was a, a big part of uh right. you know what happened in his last start uh and that's basically how we got going interesting how did you get invested or interested in racing in the first place being on the west coast in the sonoma area you obviously have that racetrack up there but that's not necessarily a hotbed for racing in terms of in the mainstream media that's true. I mean, I would say the biggest, the biggest part was the broadcast back then. Uh, my first race that I ever remember seeing was the July 1991 race at Talladega where Rick Mast uh, flipped his Oldsmobile upside down. And uh, before that, I, I think it was around the same time I saw Days of Thunder in theaters. Uh, it was a bit later after it had um, uh, its mainstream release, but uh, I think I was just attracted to just the spectacle of it and just under, you know, wanting to see uh, you know, what was, uh, what was going on in the sport. I mean, I'll admit that, you know, the crashes kind of brought me in first, uh, but then you got to get to know the drivers and, and the, the championship and so forth. And it kind of eased my transition into it. Uh, but even then, I think, I think days of thunder is a perfect allegory for yeah. uh, smaller teams trying to scrape together an existence. And, and it, it might, it may have even been as far back as that, that, that got me into it. So when you first started going to Sonoma and you kind of started to understand that, you know, even though these guys may not be winning the race or may not have a chance of winning the race, that doesn't even start to scratch the surface of why they're there, doing what they're doing, scratching and clawing, trying to be a force and be a presence in the NASCAR garage. When did you become interested in that? Because it's one thing to see it. It's one thing to understand it. It's one thing to kind of make a joke out of it with your buddies and say, oh, I wonder who finishes last the most. That'd be funny. But it's another <laughs> thing to go down that road and actually be really interested and invested in it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a good question because, I mean, it's been kind of a progression that way. I think I've always had kind of my eye on – I always th I always thought personally a lot of the teams that were at the back of the pack, they had the most interesting paid schemes. Like they would bring in companies that you wouldn't usually see mm -hmm. or they'd be drivers or teams with certain different backgrounds. But I think what really kind of kicked all this in the gear in 2009 was when you had the recession and you had a lot of teams shut down and then you had a lot of these new organizations that were springing up. Um, I was on Race Talk Radio at the time and we were having discussions about like who's going to come out of the woodwork to fill these spots. And you had guys like Prism Motorsports and Tommy Baldwin's team coming in. And that was really when the website Last Car really started. Um, I had tried to do a format where I would just follow the entire field and say, like, you know, have something to say about everybody in the field. But there would always be blank spots I'd have. But where I'd never have blank spots would be the race winner and the last place finisher. So I just yep. cut that down. And then um, that's when the site started. And it was right when you had all these starting parks coming in. Uh, and it just kind of took on a life of its own, really, from there. So as I mentioned, right, I mean, th 
finishing last is not flashy. People mm-hmm. like winners. They don't like losers. And I use that term a little bit sparingly because finishing last in a NASCAR race is not the same as finishing last in the NFL and getting the number one pick. It's not the same as your stick and ball sports because there's different agendas when race teams and drivers and cars show up to the racetrack. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir. I know you know that. Absolutely. But when you finish last, you're not necessarily a loser because it's just a different type of racing. I mean, Corey LaJoy always says that there's so many different races within the actual race. So how, how do you go about trying to approach that in the sense of covering people that are running at the back but making sure that they're not portrayed as losers because they're anything but that. But to the person that may be looking at your site or reading your content for the first time that may not know about what you do or how NASCAR works, that may, they may think that. You know, And it's good you bring that up because that's definitely something that has been kind of a central issue since the site really started. I think maybe in somebody else's hands, it would have turned into just a satire site. And each article could just be just laughing at this person for having problems or really ramping up the ridiculousness of it. Um, I feel that when I was doing my statistics and compiling them and then seeing that J.D. McDuffie had the most last place finishes, knowing that he lost his life in the last of those last place finishes of Watkins Glen in 1991, um, I think, you know, although it was it was never my intent to make it you know, a satire site, I think that really made sure to reaffirm that that was not going to be the purpose. Right. What it ended up being was, I think that the last place finish is kind of the framework. Like, as you said, when we talk with, with LaJoy, the fact that there's multiple races in the field, a lot of times, you know, the races at the back of the pack could be the same thing. People are neck and neck, even trying to just get out of last place. Sometimes better. Sometimes better. Yeah, exactly. So, but I mean, that's the thing is like, it, it's, it becomes a framework where it's really more of a driver profile. And I try mm-hmm. to talk about like how their season's gone and, right. and so forth. Uh, and then give the full context showing that there were many other drivers over the back of the field. And then if not for, you know, one certain thing that happened, this driver wouldn't be back there. Or then even the more exciting situation, which unfortunately is more rare these days, a driver that goes into the garage area, they were able to make repairs and then get back out on the track. Mm -hmm. Uh, People get really excited about that on my social media account. Uh, I have an it's live graphic that I have set up when a guy comes back (laughs) out and everybody's like, yeah, they're back in it. And that's, and that's part of the racing and it's, it's a different kind of racing, but the drama is absolutely there. And sometimes it could be the same person. I mean, Ross Chastain was last in the Daytona 500 and now Mm -hmm. he had some troubles last night, but he's had a fantastic season since then. It's, it's never a marker of saying like this driver's not capable of doing it. You know, any of these drivers in the right situation, uh, especially now today with the parody being what it is, uh, they can be right back in at the next week. I didn't think about it, but you were probably one of the the people that hated the DVP when it came into existence so much because that eliminated the it's alive graphic. It did. Yeah. I mean, now it's, I mean, we can still do it a little bit with mechanical issues. Yeah, I yeah. mean, uh, you know, but yeah, it, it is very much rare. I mean, the, when you had the wrecks, um, I mean, obviously drivers, you know, I'm sure are not happy about having to go back out there 50 laps down in a beat up car. Right. But I always remember being in the stands as a younger fan and everybody applauding when somebody Me too. came back. Out. Me too. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's a great part of it. And, and with it's, the it's tape sad numbers on the door that look like yeah. a modify with the hood off, that was the best. I mean, Lionel even made a diecast reproduction yeah. of Dale Jr.'s cars with the tape numbers. Like, yeah. Like anybody, will, anybody will buy anything, Dale Jr. Of course, yeah. But even that, <laughs> even even one that didn't win, even one that's wrecked, exactly. I think that's another way to capture it. Yeah. So another question I have is, when you started this venture over a decade ago, is 
how it was received because a lot of people, again, you know, on the surface, mm. they may say, is this satirical? They might actually think it is. Like you said, it's anything but. It's far from the truth. But whether it's competitors, teams, drivers, or even fans that have followed you on social media since the the birth of it and, and have in the last 10 or so years, what's been the reaction of it? And what was the reaction like when you first launched it? Ooh, that's a good question. That's definitely been another aspect. Like I said, with talking about making it a satire site or not, even without my intent of making it, you know, trying to make it as much about the drivers and about what happens in the back of the field, uh, there are still people that view it as a satire site or they get humor out of it. And I certainly get that. I'm not going to tell people they can't experience something some way once I put it out sure. there. Uh, there's no, I don't really have any control over it. Uh, that said, at the same time, I know it, the product that I put out there also reflects on myself. And I've had some situations where either drivers or teams or fans of certain drivers uh, may, you know, may have a problem with uh, particular productions I put together. When I started the site, to, to answer your part of question on this, um, I was I actually did a profile on Joe Nimichek when he was trying to get his team going and did a profile that was, again, much more of a driver profile. Uh, but back in 2009, the last car articles were very much, very brief, didn't do as much in terms of driver profiles, was basically just updating the statistics. So it was, it was harder back then to really kind of point and say like, look, no, I'm not trying to make this a satire site. This is just like a statistical site and so forth. Uh, but I think that's where a lot of people got kind of uh, upset at that time. Over the years, and, and especially committing to it for as long as I have, I think that that's kind of changed the perception a bit. I still get occasional messages from teams where they say like, why do you hate us? Like I actually got a message from one team. And I said, look, no, I don't hate you. I, I want to see you guys do better because that's another feature I like to do in my articles. When somebody outperforms or I can chronicle where they were, like they, you know, a guy like Michael McDowell, he wins the Daytona right. 500. He was a guy I wrote about multiple times, last car champion. Multiple times. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, exactly. And I mean, you know, had the most beat JD McDuffie's record for the most last place finishes mm -hmm. just even before that. Um, you know, that was, that was a big part of it. And, and, and that's something, but that, that also clued me in. I think the, the biggest moment I think was the biggest turning point with that website was in 2013, uh, Jason Leffler made his last cup start at Pocono driving for uh, TriStar Motorsports. And it was a start and park effort. He dropped out in the early laps. I wrote a piece on him there for the website, but you really didn't have a whole lot of information to go on. I don't think I even used the scanner audio back then. Uh, which is too bad. Uh, but, you know, then, of course, a couple of days later, he lost his life in that racing accident there. And I brought up at the time, it's like, look, this is the only site that was really talking about him. Mm -hmm. But my article really didn't do as much as it could have to really kind of focus on his career and so forth. And so really from that point, I think especially since 2013, I've really tried to focus much more on driver profiles and, of course, doing the track side coverage picked up at that point too. Right. Um, and kind of, when it's kind of that's been kind of the latest phase there and i think that's made the site improve the site's um view uh publicly these days too so obviously when you start something right it's not going to have a built-in audience and you have to work yeah. on that over time you have i have anybody that tries to build something especially in in nascar and the industry that we're in does but were you surprised when you did start to build it and you realized that there was an actual audience and a and a big <laughs> one at that for covering drivers at the back half of the field and specifically following the last place battle every week and all season long because again like <laughs> on the surface 
Who cares? But deep down, yeah. a lot of people care. I, I was very surprised. Uh, you know, I, I'd always hoped I, I, I've said this to my brother a lot. You know, one thing I've always envied with a lot of people, especially in the Internet age, is when they cut out a corner of the Internet that's themselves, that where, some, where if something happens or if a subject comes up, that they say like, "Ooh, we should probably talk to so and so about this. They'll probably have the information. Um, I, I'm, I was very pleased because there were other things I was trying in NASCAR. I, was, I did starting grid videos on YouTube. I mm -hmm. did other stuff at the time you know, things were doing okay, but never really built a big audience. And I knew the turning point was where I started actually having interviews like this. And, uh, and there was a time where I was like, you know, okay, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about this thing I'm doing? I was like, no, no, no we want to talk about the last place thing. Uh, and then that really told me, it's like, okay, this is a direction I need to go. Yeah. And I've committed a lot more time towards it. I'm curious also about the interactions you have with teams and drivers. Like you said, I mean, at any point, you know, if you're doing something right, as they say, people are going to be upset because, yeah. you know, your content's doing well or, you know, people are interested in what you have to say. And sometimes it can potentially disparage someone or some group or something like that. How do you handle situations where, you know, you have no malicious intent? You legitimately, I know you as personally, I know your work, like you're not trying to make fun of or or make light of any situation with the back marker in the back end of the field. But some that. people may not know you and may not know your work and they may think that you are. How do you handle those situations? Because like you said, one's happened recently. I don't expect you to name any names or anything, but that's something sure. that's really hard to deal with because to get people to understand that what you're doing is trying to, in a way, help them, even though they think they're being made fun of, that's a tough balance to strike. Oh, yeah. No, and, and that's, that is definitely a challenge. Uh, you know, uh, the tracks, I, that's, this has really definitely come up, especially since I started doing the track side coverage for the website in 2014. And again, starting at Sears Point and kind of building from there. Um, yeah, you're going to have some teams that maybe don't really want to, you know, don't really want to talk to your, some drivers in that case. And yeah, some I've had, I've had, I've been confronted uh, by people on teams and saying, look, I don't want to see this on your site or I don't want to, you know, I don't want this or that. And, but then you'll, I probably, you know, I, this is something that I just kind of had to work on personally, because probably earlier in my career, that kind of thing would probably just completely shake me and I wouldn't even know what to do. Mm -hmm. But I, I try to just have as much empathy as I can with these teams and understand, look, they're under a lot of stress. They have, you know, the same contract and sponsor deals as anything else. You know, when, when something like that happens, I try to, I try not to run from it. I try to just come back in and says, look, you know, I understand this is going on. Is it okay if I do this and kind of work on that? And, and I, I found from interactions like that, that it tends to kind of help some of these interactions. And, and that's just when you, it, it, and these are kind of rare situations. It, it, it probably would surprise you that this is a little bit more rare that I would have a situation like that. than yeah. uh, then that there's a lot of other teams and drivers I talk to where they're just happy to have anybody talk to them. Right. Uh, and that's kind of and that's kind of a big part. Um, you know, you you'll have, uh, you know, and I've been surprised how open uh, some people have been with what you know, what they've been able to share. I think that the back every time I cover a race, I always start at the back end of the garage because I know, I'm, you know, there's going to be, you know, interesting people there. And there's people that I've, I've you know, been on a first name basis with that, you know, that we meet up with. And uh, it's a great way to start. I actually I have a harder time if, if, if there's any part of the field I neglect is that's the top teams there. So uh, if, if a big name like Chase Elliott falls out, I always have a harder time you know, getting that aspect of it there. So, yeah, right. I think I remember like David Starr may, may have won last car. I don't remember what yes. series it was or something. 
And I think I was in the media center. I don't remember if it was Phoenix or Homestead, but I think I remember, you know, you went out there and I remember you were talking to some, some of us in the media center and we were saying, Oh, who won it? Who won it? And you're like, well, yep. it's David Starr. And then you went out and you <laughs> gave it to him and, and he took it in stride. He was like, Oh, Brock, good to see it. Well, you know, so there's, there's certain people in the garage that get it, that understand the position they're in. They understand that you are there to try to help them in a way, you know, like you're there to do your own thing, but you're not out to get them. And David Starr was kind of one of those examples in my mind, at least that I remember who kind of took that in stride. I think he posed for a picture with you. Oh yeah. And he was it, really it, cool. it was one of those funny things where it's like, okay, here you are giving a driver in NASCAR an award for finishing last more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And he's smiling about it. And I think that just yeah. speaks to both of you guys. No, it, it does. It, that's, that's something, yeah, I didn't really talk about as much. The, the last car championship, um, you know, originally that was just a framework to, you know, if you have a driver that finishes last, you know, more often, which was very common in the start and park eras, this championship thing kind of came up organically. And it was actually a race team that suggested the idea of oh. bringing a certificate out. What I mean, team that was, was it? Uh, it was, uh, gosh, I think it was, uh, I think it was Wayne Peterson's team in ARCA. Okay. Um, uh, William Saki, my ARCA correspondent. Uh, does some coverage on that side and he got a hold of me about that and says yeah we should probably do like a certificate thing uh and i'm like wow I, you know, I never really thought about that and you know certainly some drivers aren't happy to be interviewed i don't right. know if they'll, how they'll feel about certificate but yeah you're right it was at phoenix i i've done that a couple times where i bring the, the certificates out and last year i think i had like a dozen of them with me because we had a lot of people in contention mm -hmm. um and yeah i mean it's but i but just like the articles and, and this was definitely the case in david Starr's situation I try to lead into it and try to talk to him about the race and then say, oh, yeah, by the way, I also have this here for you. You know, and, and what I write on the certificate is that it's recognizing their endurance in the face of adversity, that it's not saying, oh, you know, ha ha, you're, you're terrible. It's no, right. it's like, look, you've it's been a difficult season. You know, uh, you know, maybe this is something you're not going to be putting on your shelf, but maybe it's something <laughs> you'll look back on a couple of years down the road when you're, you know, you're in victory lane or you're mm -hmm. in a better ride and say, look, look how far I've come. Uh, and right. I hope that that's, you know, I mean, it's still early yet, but maybe that'll be the case. I mean, I gave one to Jack Wood and he just laughed uh, after he got the last car title of the truck series thing. Uh, and then I gave one to Joey Gase and he wasn't sure how to take it. Uh, so you're going to get different reactions, but every, every one of them were very professional. I've never had any issues with that. That's what I was going to say. Cause it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, at the end of the season, a long arduous season, you give somebody who you may not have interacted with too much, like you personally, an award saying, hey, you finished last a lot. Here you go. It wouldn't surprise me or you at all if they got in your face and tried to tell you off. But, you know, it is what it is. And they, they kind of take it in stride. Yeah. And if that happens and I, you know, I, I, I'm I try to prepare myself for that. I don't prepare myself for like them to be, oh, my gosh, this is great. Like when J.J. Yaley offered to be taken, you know, have his picture taken with the certificate. It caught me flat-footed because I figured, well, I mean, I maybe you'll just kind of hand this to him and he'll look at it later. Uh, but no, he was like, hey, you're not, aren't you going to take a picture, <laughs> take my picture with it? I'm like, well, yeah. Uh, and that was really what started. I mean, JJ's great. I, I run into him, I think, just about yeah. every race I go to. Uh, and, you know, he's he's more typical. There's more JJs out there than, than maybe you think. So are you nervous at all? Like when you go up to one that you haven't talked to before with an award or to try to talk to them at all, or is it more so just like, well, done this before I can do it again. It's, I think, I think if it were a big name driver, that would probably be a more nerve wracking situation. Uh, Chase yeah. Elliott actually very nearly 
got a last car cup series uh championship and i had a certificate ready for him oh, wow uh and i'm like well how am i gonna do this because he's gonna have people everywhere yeah. uh and i know i'm not gonna be able to do this as discreetly as maybe a david star or somebody like that mm-hmm. um that would probably be a nervous one like i i think that might be more of an issue i mean obviously there's some teams that you know i mean they don't want to have it you know multiple times but that would that would probably be a challenge i i haven't Usually when a big name finishes and last, I don't usually follow up on an interview because I know that that person's going to get coverage. I try mm-hmm. to look at it another way, whether it's what the team's doing, if they're getting the right. car back out. Um, and I kind of divert my attention elsewhere. But yeah, that would probably be that would probably be the biggest challenge. I would be very nervous. I would admit I would be a bit nervous about that. So big name drivers don't usually finish in the back. But if and when they do, you may have to interact with them or get a quote from them or oh, yeah. talk to the team. I'm sure that the other guys that, you know, back in the start and park days when those were really prevalent, you know, mm-hmm. they kind of knew you, you knew them, they knew how you operated, what you were doing, things like that. But when you run into somebody, whether it be a driver or a team member or somebody in the industry mm-hmm. that may not be familiar with your work and what you do and how you do it, how do you explain it? Because again, on the surface, it's a strange concept. So it how is. do you explain it to somebody that may not really get it? I, I try, I take a lot of inspiration from a lot of like the classic, um, the classic broadcasters, your, your Ned Jarrett, your Glenn Jarrett, folks like that. You know, it, there's still some of that today in, in broadcasting, but it was much more prevalent uh, back when I was into the sport that, you know, you would, you would basically have like the, the same three questions. It's like, okay, what happened out, you know, like, are you okay? What happened out there? Uh, can they get the car back out? You know, something to that nature. And I try to kind of, you know, the, who I'm representing is kind of secondary, although I'm, I usually am wearing this hat. So they'll, you know, they'll probably look at that while they're probably while they're talking to me. Yeah. Like while they're talking to me, they're looking at like, what the hell is this? And it's like, you know, but um, you know, but generally I try to kind of approach it that way. Like I'm just trying to get the story, you know, if it's right. like a, you know, a mechanical situation, try to get the information. Um, some races, it's very hard to get that information. Uh, Christopher Bell's engine failure at Fontana this year, I think was a perfect example uh, there were crew members that were standing there. The driver went back to the motor coach lot pretty quick, uh, which is also a problem that happens with a lot of the bigger name drivers. The, yeah. the, the underfunded guys tend to stay with the cars uh, more often. Sometimes they're even working on the cars. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were crew members and they just clearly did not look like they wanted to talk. So I didn't push it. I just took some, took my pictures and just went back from there. Um, but, you know, I try to, talk to somebody because I don't what I also don't want to do is of course misrepresent what's happening because I feel that what happens in the back of the pack it's very easy for people to just say oh well that was just a start and park or oh it was just an engine failure oh they were just out immediately I've seen so many occasions where even the radio is saying that a team is out of the race and the crew's still working on it and the other case where they even get back out Ricky Stenhouse had this happen at Sears Point last year um those are the kind of things I like to kind of bring out as ever possible because because that puts them that shows determination on the team that i i don't feel gets enough emphasis really these days yeah definitely and especially to your social coverage i mean even last night you know we're talking after the bristle dirt race now i whenever i'm on twitter during the race there's a couple people that i can always go to if i want to see what's going on in the back half of the field with you know the rick ware cars or whether it was starcom back in the day or premium motorsports you, the racing underdogs, there's a couple other people on Twitter that tweet racing the radio chatter, really tweet cool. what's going on, right? So, I mean, last night, Justin Allgaier finished his last for Spire Motorsports, mm-hmm. and I was going through your feed in preparation for the chat today, 
And I saw that you were talking about what they were chatting about on their radio and what the potential problem was to cause that accident and things like that. So it's one thing to, you know, have the, the coverage on television of, oh, Denny Hamlin. He's a big name. He makes the championship four every year. I know we didn't finish last last night, but, you know, he had an issue. They talked to him after the race. This is what happened. It's another thing when J.J. Yaley or Cody Ware or insert backmarker driver or team here finishes last and TV or radio doesn't really mention them just because it's kind of commonplace every week. But there is an audience, clearly, that wants to know what is happening or what did happen to that person. And that's kind of a niche that you've kind of carved out for yourself on social media, at least, that's transferred over to Patreon, over to YouTube, over to your website. And that's something that, you know, talking to you and getting to know you, you literally and thoroughly enjoy <laughs> doing that stuff. I mean, again, it's not flashy. It's not the the sexy thing to talk about what's going on at the back. But you really enjoy that and you revel in it. I do. No, and I appreciate it. I'm glad that comes across because that's, it does. It, it's, it's really, it is so fundamentally changed how I experience watching a race these days. I think, especially after that 2013 uh, transition, after Leffler's accident, I, I feel like I remember races in a very different way since then too, because mm -hmm. it's much more focused on like, yeah, the, the, the exchanges in last place and, and uh, in, in all, all three of the top series and which teams I'm talking about. Like if somebody will ask me like, you know, who won Martinsville in the spring of 2018, like I'll have a hard time kind of remembering it. Uh, but I could probably think back to the last place finisher at that, uh, at that point there. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, that's, it, it is something I definitely enjoy. And I, and I think at the best, in the best case scenario, um, you know, you actually kind of get two races in one. I can watch the battle at the last place spot. It usually is settled by the time you start the last stage. Not always. Truck series race had nobody fall out on Saturday, which was crazy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, then you could watch the battle for the win just like everybody else. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, I, I, I think I sense this from a lot of people that follow the site and, and also that, that, yeah, there is an audience that there are people that are excited to understand what's happening with these teams, even if things don't go well, uh, because when they do go well, then they could just, this is part of their story. It's like, this guy used to be a star in park. Now he's in victory lane. And, and I want that too. I, I actually had this happen at the clash. Uh, one of the teams, uh, team members came out and says, look, you're gonna have to find somebody else to pick on. And I, you know, I was like, and I left, I thought that was great. I was like, and I'm glad they had that moment. I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad they had that moment. Cause you know, I didn't take it personally at all. I said like, look, you know, that's good because I know that for them, you know, that's, that was, you know, they may not, they may not think it at the time, but this, that was a measuring stick for them. It's like, are they going to be on the last car side all the time? Or are they now competing against, you know, a JTG Darty or some other program that's more mid middle of the pack? Um, that's great. And that's what I told them. I said, look, yeah, this is what this is what our readers want to see. Um, and that's that's just the case. Yeah. And I remember, you know, there's been times where there's been teams that kind of migrate up through the pack and drivers that go with them or go from team to team. I mean, even just looking at kind of the the history books of last car, Matt Benedetto, he's won a couple. Mm -hmm. Michael McDowell is one of few, right? I mean, these are drivers that have been and continue to be at the top level of the Cup Series contending for and winning races, but you can say that you knew them when they were finishing yep. last every week and starting and parking and doing their thing. So that's got to be a, a bit of the rewarding part of what you do with this site because you can kind of see and understand how these drivers and how these teams operate, and you also understand that, you know, this is kind of a means to an end for some of the drivers be it Matty D, Michael McDowell, whatever, back in those days when they were kind of starting and parking. And if they get to know you, then, you know, 
when you see them at a different time, they know that you're not there just to get a rise out of them. You know that they're there and that you're still doing your thing while they have been doing theirs. It's kind of like a tandem thing, but they know that you're there to help them, not necessarily out to get them, which I think is kind of the overarching theme of what you try to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's what we, that's what we really try to do. Uh, you know, it just cover as many of these programs as possible. I mean, drivers and teams has always been the big, a big passion of mine. I always love seeing how, yeah, like you mentioned, how a team grows, how a driver gains experience, how they, you know, they'll make mistakes at first, but then they'll be able to be, uh, become more competitive along the way. And, uh, that's uh, that's something that's really kind of, you know, I mean, it gets to the point now where uh, I was putting so many entry list updates in there that became kind of a feature in its own where I just track how the drivers and teams move because yeah. silly seasons every week now. Uh, and that becomes part of it, too. Yeah, I uh, I'm not sure if this driver has the record for the most last place finishes in a year. You can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm sure, you know, but I was just doing some some slight research. In 2015, I think it was in the Xfinity series, Jeff Green finished last 23 times. Do I have that uh, right? I believe so. I'm just pulling my stat page up here. I think it was. I know that was like the, the starting park up. days, but that is, I mean, it that's was, a lot. <laughs> it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. What he what he was doing at the time, like helping that TriStar team out and just try to get his, uh, you know, because they were, I think they had like J.J. Ailey or Mike Bliss in their, in their primary car and he was running their backup. Love his uh, throwback just, names. Yeah. See, there you go. I mean, it, it doesn't even seem that long ago, but it now feels like a throwback. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the biggest thing with Green on that one is when he had the, uh, uh, what I, what part of it was, was the most thrilling was when he had eight last place runs in a row. Uh, nobody else had ever had more than four. And uh, so, you know, that was just a whole other time. But yeah, I believe 23 was a number. I'm, I'm seeing Green's name come up a lot here. And, and he was another one. Uh, he was probably one of the first that I talked to that had been a prolific last place finisher. Uh, I met him at Darlington in 2017. And I had to, I actually had a t-shirt I presented with him because he was about to get his 100th last place finish. Wow. And the first thing he told me is like, I didn't think I was at 100 yet. It was like, <laughs> not yet. But so he knows, he knows, he knew. So he knew and and just really cool guy, very down to earth. Um, You know, uh, I know he's, he's basically stepped out of the driver's seat here. Uh, But yeah, then of course, you know, with, with all the starting park runs, he ended up being like far and away having the most last place finishes. But again, a driver that, you know, I mean, does that take away his 2000 Xfinity championship where he had most dominant season in the sports history? or driving for the king in in the cup series like no i mean he's he's accomplished a lot in his career uh it just so happens that this is another aspect of it and when he did run full race runs uh he even with tristar towards or bj mcleod's team towards the later part of his career he had some good runs and those were ones that i enjoyed talking about as well (laughs) so not only do you do coverage of the back half and the end of the garage but you also are a published author not once, but multiple times. You got some books, biographies right there on J.D. McDuffie. I think Derek Cope as well. I'm not a yes, big sir. reader, but the books that I do have on my shelf over there that I never touch, they're all NASCAR books, and I have yet <laughs> to get yours. So I think after this chat, I'm going to go on Amazon and buy them, honestly. Um, <laughs> no, I appreciate it. But becoming an author, like that is not a small feat in and of itself. What what drew you to become an author and write and author these stories about a couple people in motorsports that are really, really big names and influential names? Because 
it's not a small undertaking to go about that. It's one thing to cover them week to week and say, all right, you know, they're running in the back of the pack. It's another one to profile their entire lives and their entire being. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, uh, writing has always been a, a big passion of mine. Um, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed creative writing projects in school. Uh, I was one course short of a creative writing emphasis in college, and that was just because they actually moved me past the introductory creative writing course hmm. to the advanced one at the end. Uh, so I did a lot of short story writing in college. Uh, I did a thesis project on uh, disaster films in the 1970s, actually, in my senior year uh, there. Mm. So I've always been very passionate about both writing and then as a corollary to that to research. Of all topics that I was you know, interested in, uh, I mentioned J.D. McDuffie earlier in this as well, because he was a big part of the last, last car site and kind of developing the tone of the site and everything going forward. Uh, I didn't I didn't see JD's accident live, although I was just getting into the sport back in 1991. I didn't really know anything about him uh, until I was in high school, like year 2000. And I saw there were a couple of websites that were talking about him. And I was like, wait a minute, this this driver lost his life at Watkins Glen. How come I have never heard about this? So really, the research that I did for the JD McDuffie book, this one right here, really started at that point. And it was just for my own curiosity. I was just kind of getting this information together not really knowing what I was going to do with it. I was just, again, it was just my own career. I just had a folder of just the pictures I find or stories. Yeah. Um, big turning point was in 2011. Uh, so quite a, quite a bit later, I came across Marty Burke, uh, who was a crew member on the team. And uh, I did an interview with him just, just on a whim. I just came I saw his name come up in one of the articles I read. I found an email address online and he got back to me and he says, yeah, no, I was on the team. And, that started a, a, a friendship that that really has you know gone on since then. And he knew Mike Demiers uh, that was on the crew, and then you know Mike knew a couple other people. And suddenly, I just had all these interviews. I'm like, well, I got to do something with this. About the same time, I read a book called Killer Show uh, that was a chronicle of the 2003 Station nightclub fire, um, and I was really struck by how well that was written and how detailed it was and pre presenting a chronology of this and what was learned from it. Uh, and I really started thinking while I was reading, it's like, is there something I know about that I could really apply to this? And I've always struggled with more fiction writing, but I hadn't done as much nonfiction outside the site. And then it occurred to me, it's like, well, wait a minute, I've had all this JD McDuffie material. And there's still questions I have about it. Um, why don't I go down that direction? And so I started, I came across Jim Derhog, who was right behind JD and that when the accident occurred and he gave just a sterling interview and it just picked up momentum from there. This is about 2016, I believe, was when I started actually writing the book. And by 2018, it was in print and Waldorf Publishing picked it up. Um, I've just recently republished it under my own name uh, when, the, when the contract expired there. Awesome. Uh, so as you mentioned, yes, it's, it's on Amazon. It's revised and extended with the last car logo uh, on it here. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I was, I, even now, I mean, there's, there's a Facebook group on, on the JD McDuffie page, uh, uh, JD McDuffie racing legend. And there's still crew members that are on there that are providing even more information. So hmm. um, it's, it's really created. It, it's really, it, it's really affected me quite a bit because um, in talking with a lot of these people, I sense that, because of what happened with JD in 1991, a lot of these stories just weren't getting heard. And I think it was just because it, it 
was the end of a team. It was the end of a you know, it was a driver's life. It was the end of a team. It was the end of a, a really a period in the sport where it, with owner drivers. Um, obviously, we had ones that were bigger names, but not in the same sense of just like handcrafting your cars mm -hmm. and everything. Um, and it was, I think it was cathartic in some case. I, I may be speaking out of turn here, but I it got the sense. sense from some of these people that it was like, yeah, it felt good for them to share these stories. And, and that's why they're still doing it now. And it was, it was a privilege to be some part of that. And, and I, and I'm, and now apparently in September, uh, there's going to be a JD McDuffie mural that's going to be painted on the side of a building in, uh, in downtown Sanford. That's going to be unveiled wow. on the weekend of the Southern 500. So um, way more than I ever thought I was going to, um, uh, to be from this, but, um, but yeah, uh, the JD book is available. The next book, as you mentioned on Derek Cope is in the works. I actually have another interview with Derek at the end of the month, uh, cool. working on a cover illustration here, hope to get that done soon. And just looking to do other, the, the theme I'm looking to do with these books is, is it, 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 I almost treated this one like a longer last car article just to provide <laughs> as much context. Right. Um, uh, but I think also the focus will be on stories that that maybe people think they know, but there's even more context that um, hasn't been discussed as much. And, and that's kind of been a big focus that I, I like to kind of do. So would it be fair to say that kind of the, the last car, I guess you could say aura that you kind of present and, and the covers that you provide is a bit similar to how you went about writing the JD book in the sense that you understand that this is something that, a lot of people may be a little bit sensitive to it's something that people may not yes. be totally and completely aware of but again and i'm not really trying to compare the two but no, in a it's, way it's a fair comparison yeah and in the sense of you know jd's death was tragic in a lot of different ways and that's not easy for people to talk about whether they were working for him on his team in the same race as him or his family i mean that needs to be handled with delicate hands and I think you, you know, doing the work that you have and having the historical knowledge that you do, you're the perfect man for that job. But how hard was it? And, and what were the difficult parts of going about doing those interviews and researching for that book? Because dealing with a tragedy and a death like that, it's never easy. And doing so with people that were really, really close to that subject makes it even harder. It's a good question. I, you know, I mean, probably in hindsight, it probably would have been easier for my first book to be something a bit lighter, uh, maybe starting <laughs> with the Derek Cope book and then right, kind of yeah. going into this. Um, but, you know, that was, you know, obviously, you know, you talk with some people. I mean, I think of talking with Mike Demers. I think of talking with I, I'm a Gene McDuffie, um, people that I really thought they weren't going to say anything about this or they were just going to politely turn down the interview and I'll just cobble together what I can get. Um you know, it, it, yeah, the emotions, the emotions were very, very raw. And there's still some of that that's not entirely resolved, even between members of the family, members of the crew. Um, some of that, and, and even just, again, the, the, the popular perception that's even still out there that J.D. McDuffie's accident was caused because he ran old, dangerously old equipment and the car fell apart, the car was a piece of junk. Like, no, there was, there were, there were so many other stories in there. Um, you know, uh, those that, that check out the book that we'll find out uh, that the car that JD ran at Watkins Glen was one of the best he ever had. It had new, a new engine, new suspension parts. And he was one of the only drivers that entire weekend that wasn't having trouble with the new radial tires and sliding off the course and wrecking their equipment. A lot of big hmm. teams were having problems that weekend. And that, that was another aspect of that weekend that doesn't get remembered. Um, but 
yeah, that was that was a big part of it. The emotions were were very raw. There were some, and this was at a time. My my job at the time, I was actually working in the emergency room as a registration clerk. So you know, I mean, you know, I I I think maybe that job kind of helped a little bit in the work because I mean, you see a lot in that context, and you yeah. know, you're seeing people under difficult circumstances there. Definitely. Um, you know, but, uh, I mean, I was, you know, I was just a registration clerk. I always called myself like an eighth responder. Um, but you know, the, <laughs> the, uh, but yeah, you would see a lot of stuff in there. And, and I think that kind of helped approach the articles and, and again, trying to handle it as delicately as possible while also still trying to get the information out there. But again, I think what really helped is, is in each of those cases, especially where, yeah, when you talk with the family directly, um, they really wanted to share that information. And, and they, and I think that I hope at least in the wash that maybe it's, it's helped resolve some of these problems, uh, between them. I, I know that there's still some, some stuff out there that may, may never heal. Um, yeah. and that's the unfortunate reality of it. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it's made some progress. I mean, we, we had a great media tour, Watkins Glen in 2018, uh, Linda saw turn five for the first time. She'd never even been to the track before. Um, and we were able to kind of arrange that. And, um, yeah, uh, it's, it was a tremendous experience. I definitely think from, from your recounts of it and from the feedback I've seen on social and everything, it seems like it was cathartic for, for all parties involved. So I'll have to get me a copy and, and read that when I get around to my reading phase of my life, if it comes amazon.com it's in print go. it's also in uh i also have the ebook if you're a digital book mm -hmm. uh, preference i also narrated my own audiobook uh, of it last summer which is also available there so if you're if you're not cool. big into reading the print version or, or or having that uh i have it in any format people prefer and i'm planning to do the same thing for the Derek Cope book of course as well very very cool speaking of narrating some things uh youtube you got a big presence there Ooh. and you know given the fact that you wrote a biography on J.D. McDuffie. You're doing one on Derek Cope. I think it's fair to say that you know your NASCAR history and you love <laughs> your NASCAR history and you do a lot of work with NASCAR Man uh, in terms I of do. the historical videos that he produces and the historical content that he provides. You do the same thing. What about NASCAR history and history in general, I guess, what intrigues you so much about it? Because I feel like nostalgia in any sport is big. But I feel like in NASCAR, especially in kind of this day and age that we're in, people, myself included, love, love nostalgia. I mean, I only was born in 96, <laughs> so I don't remember, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever. But there's a lot of people out there that do and want to hear and see a lot about it. And I kind of take it that you're one of those people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I was I was born in 82. So, you know, getting into the sport in the early 90s, I mean, that was you know, growing up, it was all about, you know, Bob, which races are Bob Jenkins and Ned Jarrett and Benny Parsons, which ones are the Eli Gold and Buddy Baker races. Yeah. Um, it was a, it was a golden age in the sport. And I do get, a, I do get uh, a lot of, you know, um, I, I always, I, I've, I've discussed this actually on the live stream a, a while back. I kind of feel like I'm the Daryl Waltrip of like the YouTube community. And I don't mean that in a sense of, uh, of any level of quality. I, I mean it more in a sense of generational differences because yeah. I feel I, when I always remember Daryl Waltrip in the nineties, I always remember it was like, what, what's this old guy doing in the sport? And why is everybody viewing him as the same as Rusty <laughs> Wallace and Dale Earnhardt and Jeff Gordon? Yeah. Like these guys are big names. Why is he always lumped in with that? And then I think the trick with Daryl is of course he was big in the, of that time with Richard Petty and he was towards the later part of his career 
uh, kind of like JD in, in that sense um, with uh, with Earnhardt and so forth. And, uh, you know, it's just a different audience that it, it kind of goes toward an older audience. And, you know, Daryl Walter fans were like that. So, you know, it's it's what, what I do on my channel is not it's not the biggest channel out there. Um, you know, and I know there's other ones that are, that are way more popular, but, uh, what I feel I'm able to bring is, yeah, kind of talking about my own memories in, in the sport and, and this time period that doesn't get discussed as much. And, and also, you know, kind of more selfishly, what, what, it, what I enjoy about doing a lot of those projects, uh, is I, I discover new things about it that I'd forgotten. Yep. And I like kind of the satisfaction of cobbling it together into a chronology and presenting it like even doing like larry foyt like talking to profile on him and and understanding why his career went the way it did or the field filler series um has been tremendously popular talking about you know interviewing these drivers uh who you know some people like andy belmont who were who absolutely don't mind that they were labeled that way just just reveled in it um you know they're you know it's it's great to be able to to help bring some of these stories together and uh, Tom, uh, NASCAR man there, you mentioned there too. Um, you know, I've really enjoyed working with him as well because, you know, my focus has been much more on the Cup Series uh, to a lesser extent, Xfinity and trucks. Uh, he has a, a very deep passion for all forms of motorsports, uh, which is why I always, whenever somebody always says like, oh, Brock, I liked your video on like, uh, um, uh, you know, the race at Raleigh Speedway or something like that. It's like, no, 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 that was, I, I make sure to make clear that it's like, look, I'm just narrating those videos. That That's yeah. all Tom's stuff. Uh, Tom does an incredible job with his scripts. He credits me with, with his inspiration for doing uh, some of his work there, but all the work and the research that he does, that's all him on his own. I think we just happen to have a very similar interest, at least in, in yeah. presenting these stories together. Uh, but it's been a very, it's been a very enjoyable uh, working relationship there too. Yeah. I'd say you both are very good at what you do, very passionate about what you do. So it's a, it's a good marriage there. And like you said, I mean, you say you don't have a big following on YouTube or not the biggest. I mean, bigger than mine. You got 14 and a half thousand subscribers. Like that's, that's nothing to shake your head at. I mean, how did you, how did you go about growing that following? Because again, like I I keep hitting on it, but you think NASCAR fans want to hear about what's going on at the front with their favorite driver. You don't think that they want to hear about what's going on in the back because quote unquote, (laughs) no one cares, but at least 14 and a half thousand people do. They do. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think one thing that helped was, uh, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. I used to do these starting grid videos, uh, where I would introduce the starting lineup, uh, for, uh, the cup series races. I did this from 2008 to 2011 each yep. week, which was a pretty tumultuous time. The end of Jimmy Johnson's, uh, consecutive championships and Tony Stewart's landmark season there. Um, and I got about, I think I got about 2000 subscribers from that, which was, which was decent, but the growth didn't seem to really be going anywhere. And that was about the same time that the last car site was taken off. Um, and I didn't really post a lot of stuff on the YouTube channel for a bit. But then I thought, like, well, okay, well, wait a minute. This is a great outlet to kind of expand on the last car thing and really do features on the yeah. different teams. And and that's really where the channel, yeah, it, it has it has shown growth. I don't mean to be too down on it there. I just I I I just don't want to get a, I don't want to get a big head about it because I think there's you know there's a lot you, of great yeah. content on YouTube and a lot of people that do different, you know, material and, and bring, you know, their views to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if, you know, if, if this site is, is, if this is as big as the site's ever going to get, I'll be perfectly happy. We, I'm able to do four or five, you know, usually between three to five races in person a year uh, to do the track site coverage, which people enjoy. 
Uh, the Patreon has been really on board with that. Yep. Um, and yeah, in that way, you know, really not that different from a lot of the teams we talked about that maybe can't afford to do, you know, the full season. They just, yeah. they got certain just cases. Like <laughs> yeah. Which is great. And I, and I think that really helps, you know, it helps the writing too, because, you know, we're on kind of the same page in that sense. You know, it's, it's never, it's, it's never, it's never punching down or anything like that. It's, it's all, it's all uh, talking about it, but, uh, but yeah, the YouTube is, YouTube has been a lot of fun. I'm just now kind of, I, I have I, I've reached a point now where I kind of have a log jam of projects uh, to work on, and I'm I'm excited yeah. to kind of get going on them. Uh, and I know that the viewers are excited to see them, so that's been good. A couple quick hitters here before I let you go. You mentioned the Patreon, everybody. I encourage you guys to check that out. You can find it on Brock's Twitter profile, any of his social media profiles there. I mean, I'm not spilling any secrets here. This is public information. You know, when you click on the page, sure. but you're making like close to 400 bucks a month, like on Patreon. I mean, this is a big, <laughs> big deal. And I keep going back to the fact that people like your content. People want to be informed on what's going on at the back half of the garage. Have you yep. been surprised about that and the support that you've received that on that side of things? Because like you said, yes. you can't go to every race. You know, this is not your full-time job, so to speak, but having a little extra income to help you get to the track to provide the most accurate, fair, and good coverage that you can, that really, really helps. And clearly some fans are trying to get in on that with you. It really does. And, and, and it means the world to me. I mean, any anybody that joins the Patreon, I try to, you know, just give them- you make you it know, worth the, their the while. I really try to. Like, you <laughs> know, I, I uh, uh, whenever I do the races there, I, I have a magnet I put on the side of my car with their names on it. And then I do a drawing after we get back uh, to, to uh, send the magnet to one of them. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're the lifeblood of it, you know, and also, and again, people, yeah, I know not everybody's able to do the Patreon. So if they're able to see the videos on YouTube, that helps, or if they share the links and just, you know, keep the stuff out there, all of it goes towards the, the, the same effort there. And, and that, and that means a lot to me because it shows that people are really interested in, yes, this kind of coverage that they do want to know what's Absolutely. happening with these teams back there. And, and so when I'm, when I'm at the track, I lace my sneakers up tight and I just try to get as much information as I can. In some races, you're going you're gonna to get more information than others. Uh, but, you know, I try to really get as much as I, as I possibly can. And, and, I, and I know my viewers appreciate that. And, and I, you know, I, I, I'm happy to, to provide for them as well. So um, hopefully that's something I can uh, keep doing in the future. Next coverage is going to be Sears Point again this June. So get ready for that. So I mentioned, you know, last car is not your full-time job. This is not what you yes. do to necessarily live and pay the bills. Getting ready to let you go to Gork here in a minute sure, or two. Fine. What what do you do in, in the meantime? Like, what is your quote-unquote full-time job and you do the last car stuff on the side? So uh, right now I work with uh, California Children's Services. Uh, I actually work, I uh, help uh, facilitate the paperwork uh, for special needs children. Uh, there's a lot of uh, people that are on Medi-Cal or Medicare uh, here in the state of California. And there's a lot of paperwork that gets pushed back and forth there. And I work with some physical therapists and occupational therapists. Got a nice, uh, nice small group up here. We're not one of the biggest offices here, uh, but a uh, great group of people there. And I just, I'm just in the boiler room, just helping them move the, move the stuff along there. And um, I, I know they really appreciate my work and, and they're really supportive of the site too. Um, actually there's one of my last car bumper stickers is on, uh, on the wall in the I office there too. So there, you know, every, and that's, and that's something that's also been, you know, uh, uh, something I've enjoyed over the years. I, I always feel like I've been in a position to kind of share my enjoyment of the sport and try to bring people into it. And Absolutely. I've, even if I've been in the situation where 
I'm the only NASCAR fan in the group. And, and I, I always view that as kind of an advantage. It's like, you know, I can introduce people to this. It was, it was like yeah. this. I worked in the emergency room and yeah, yeah. You, you understand it too. I and I think that's, I think that's great. If, if I think if you're able to bring that into people's lives, maybe they'd be exposed to something they wouldn't think they'd be interested in. And, and I think that's, that's the best for all of us and certainly for the sport. So are your coworkers like Cody Ware, JJ Yaley, Timmy Hill, David Starr fans? <laughs> uh, they may be on the way. Uh, <laughs> I, my, 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 uh, at my previous job, I think it got to that point where we were talking yeah. about, like, oh, how'd Timmy do this week? Like it was, it was kind of like I love that. it. But yeah, I think we're, we're getting there. I, I think we, we may have a contingent there at Sears Point here pretty soon. But um, cool. yeah, they've been they've been very supportive. My family's been very supportive of this, too. Um, I know that, you know, they, they've never questioned it uh, from the start here. Uh, I think the important thing with them has always been to find your passion and just mm -hmm. go after it. And that's, you know, no, we're not doing it halfway. We're we're going full bore. And that's been if it's last place finishers, they've been right with me. So, yeah. <laughs> I saw an article with a headline and the link was dead, so I wasn't able to confirm it. So I'll ask hmm. you to confirm it. Were you also a lawyer at one point? Ah, interesting question. <laughs> um, short answer is no, uh, but I do have a legal background. I actually do have my JD uh, from uh, John F. Kennedy University. Uh, in 2011, when I'd had the interview with Marty Burke about the yes. same time, uh, I was actually taking the California bar exam uh, okay. and unfortunately I didn't pass that. Uh, I did take a few attempts at it there, but by that point, that was kind of when the last car site kind of really kind of yeah. coming into its own. And, you know, I, I never say never it's, I'm glad I had the experience because I think even that helped with my writing, uh, my writing as well. I wouldn't, I, I don't mean to dismiss law school as like a writing course. It's much more than that. But, um, but I, I think what I found, I, 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 one thing I really remember is when you would write a legal brief. I always enjoyed writing the statement of facts better than the argument. And even writing this, this book kind of felt like that. Like I, yeah. you know, understanding what happened and who was involved. Um, I think that's, that's a form of writing. That's, that's important to understand. So no, I, I I'm not an attorney, but I, I am, I do, I do have my law degree. So, you know, and it's, okay. and it's, it's, and I, I actually received a Wiccan award uh, for constitutional law. I really enjoyed uh, cool constitutional studies there too so you know and it's 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 just good to have I, more education is is always better my, my family's been very passionate about education heck i mean one thing it probably didn't come up too i used to be in the band i actually played trombone back in uh for years even the jazz band so uh you know i haven't used that skill set in a while either but i mean it's there <laughs> so you know it's yeah you need it exactly uh, last thing what's up with nascar karaoke we bringing it back <laughs> oh now there's a throwback you want to talk about a throwback weekend yeah. you know when we when i when did the throwback coverage a while back i almost thought of changing the hat so it had the old karaoke for nascar fans oh logo. yeah but yeah that was that was yeah race talk real quick yeah race talk radio.com um i was that was my first podcast gig in 2006 uh dennis michelson and Lori monroe um still great people i'm still in touch with them here and there as well um uh, unfortunately the show's not on anymore but uh, that was my sketch back then. I did. I changed song lyrics into race reviews and I did that. That was good. For two oh, no, I appreciate it. I, I, I never, you talk about a site that didn't really get a lot of attention, but I think probably for your viewers out there, I think that the biggest thing with that is that, you know, um, if you want to get into the sport or if you want to get into something, uh, don't be afraid to just, just do it. Just, just do whatever comes to mind and, and know that, 
that first thing that you do, it may not be the thing that really you stick with, you know, forever and ever, uh, but it gets your foot in the door. Um, and, you know, and, and that was certainly the case uh, with the karaoke for NASCAR fans. It got me on there. Um, last car came up soon after. And, and, you know, it may be your second, third or fourth idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that could be the thing that brings you uh, brings you to the sport or, or whatever your pursuit is. It doesn't have to be in journalism. It could be in anything else. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I, I hope people uh, take inspiration from that as well. I think people take inspiration from you, honestly. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's been I'm serious, man. It's been great to chat. I'm, I know you. I know your work, but it's been awesome to get to know your story a little bit more and just to hear your passion for for not just the sport, but the back half of the garage that doesn't get a lot of play and that it's hard to find a little bit of a passion back there. And it's hard to find people that have a passion for what's going on back there, but you are P one in the pack when it comes to the passion back there. So I appreciate you getting up early. I appreciate you sharing your story. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge, your wisdom and your time with me. It's been awesome to chat and catch up with you, Brock. I hope to see you soon, not at Sonoma, but eventually potentially maybe Phoenix. I'll see oh, yeah. you soon again. It was good to see you at the clash. So I want to see you again. Oh, thank you. I'll be, I'll be there with certificates again in Phoenix. That's the plan. Yes. <laughs> yes. Who, who's leading right now, by the way, do you know? Uh, let's see. I think Dean Thompson, the truck series. Uh, gosh, I got to pull up. I got to do I was hoping to be able to do that from memory. Uh, cup series one, Corey LaJoy is leading. Right. Oh shoot. Yeah. We were just talking about Corey earlier. Uh, it's a close battle there. Nobody has uh, repeat ones. And then in the Xfinity series, it is da, da, da. oh, Brent, that's right. Brennan Poole had two in a row. He's going mm. for three in a row. Well, hopefully not uh, at Talladega yeah. this week, uh, this next week. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah, it's early. It's early. A lot, lot left Very to take early. care of. But be sure to keep up with Last Car on Twitter, Last Car on Brock. He will keep you up to speed on everything. Thank you so much, my man. I so appreciate you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And we're back. Woo! What a chat with Brock. Great guy, right? I mean, if you guys have not met him in person, he doesn't go to the racetrack a lot. Like he said, he has his own quote-unquote real job, and he's out in the West Coast, so he only goes to a handful of West Coast races a year at the moment. He's a great, great dude. I always can see him in the garage, like roaming around the back half of the garage where all the TV cameras and all the people are towards the front trying to get the story for the big hitters. And He's just chilling in the back, talking to his people, doing his thing. And I I was also present for when he presented David Starr, I think, with that last car award. And that was just a sight to see. It was so funny. So thank you to Brock for the time. Keep doing you, my man. It was great to catch up. Great to learn a little bit more about you. And I look forward to seeing you at the racetrack soon, my friend. We got to chat a little bit about Bristol Dirt. It was surprisingly good. And I say that because I had been a skeptic and, you know, still remain to a certain extent, a skeptic of the whole concept, the whole experiment, which is what they were calling it, the whole idea. But I would be lying if I said I didn't enjoy what I watched on Sunday night. I really, really enjoyed it. The finish, I mean, that didn't hurt matters, right? (laughs) I mean, the TV ratings were the most for the spring Bristol race since 2016, over 4 million people. Which leads me to believe this experiment is not going anywhere. Racing on Easter Sunday night is not going anywhere. So that's going to be a staple moving forward, in my opinion. Whether you like it or not, you might as well get used to it and plan around it because it ain't going anywhere. But it really was a good show. I mean, the track prep was better, barring the first 15 laps with the mud getting caked on everywhere. 
There seemed to be a bit of a cushion that developed. There were two predominant grooves, which allowed for some side-by-side racing for most of the event. And we got to get to the end with that slider gone wrong from Chase Briscoe. Spins out into Tyler Reddick. Reddick spins out, does a 360, gets it back rolling, but is nipped at the finish line by KFB Kyle Busch, who just last week was an unabashed critic of the dirt race, and I think still remains that, saying that dirt takes the sport backwards. He doesn't think we should be on dirt. He doesn't think Bristol should be a dirt race. All these things. He don't care now. I'm sure he actually does. But for the 18th consecutive season, Kyle Busch is a winner in the NASCAR Cup Series, tying the all-time mark with the King, who we honored last week in Papa Siegel's Wayback segment, Richard Petty. That's a pretty substantial and lofty goal that Kyle Busch set for himself a while ago, and now he has achieved that, so good for him on that. So the finish was great. The racing was great. I think that there could be some things worked out in terms of communicating to the teams and drivers adequately beforehand what the scoring procedures are like under red flag. I was able to understand it. A lot of other people weren't, and I don't fault them for that. I don't fault really anybody. I think it was just a miscommunication on a lot of people's parts. So making sure that that is set in stone, ready to go. If Mother Nature can just politely get the hell out of the way when we're racing on a dirt track at Bristol, that would be great. The one thing that I have to say is that the race didn't really have a good flow to it. I mean, there were ebbs and flows, but it felt a bit of like a roller coaster. It was like, ah, ah, caution, ah, ah, rain. Uh, uh, another spin out. Uh, uh, and then you got a long green flag around. Uh, another caution or a stage break. So it was a little bit up and down from my perspective on that. But I can't really be too nitpicky because, again, the racing that I saw and that I watched, that I consumed, the product that was being put on display, it was really good. And I admit when I'm wrong, I'll admit it here. I did not think it was going to be good this year. It wasn't good last year. I was wrong. And I'm happy that I was. Uh, And you know what? I I don't know if I really mean this when I say it, but if they do it next year, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, there. I said it. So good on SMI, Steve Swift, Jerry Caldwell, NASCAR, everybody involved with the track prep, getting the track ready to go, keeping it ready to go, and everybody for just pulling the whole event off. They did a really, really good job. Kudos need to be paid to them, even though it's cliche. So kudos to you. Talladega is a little bit different than a half-mile dirt track, wouldn't you say? 2.66-mile high-bank super speedway compared to a half-mile dirt track. Just a wee bit different. I bet you could fit like six, seven, or eight Bristols inside of Talladega. Man, it's going to be good. It always is at Talladega. It's a 500-mile race, a really, really long one, in my opinion. But at the same time, everybody loves Talladega for one reason and one reason only unpredictability. We could see Harrison Burton win. We could see Cody Ware win. We could see Todd Gillen win. Are we going to? I would say likely not, but we could also see and probably will Denny Hamlin, Martin Truex Jr., Brad Keselowski for RFK Racing, Ryan Blaney for Team Penske. There's a lot of drivers that are really, really good on super speedways that will be running up front. I didn't even mention Denny Hamlin. I think he will be my pick to win the race just because he's so, so good on these types of tracks that it would be crazy for me to not even consider him as my pick. So I'll roll with Denny. Don't sleep on Brad. Don't sleep on the Penske Trio. 
One of them, the youngest driver, obviously already won this year at the Daytona 500. And don't sleep on Stuart Haas Racing either. I know that they haven't had the year that they want so far. Chase Briscoe's won. He almost won again. Harvick has a second-place finish so far. But last week was not their finest hour besides the 14 car. They have run well at Talladega before. They have won a race there before. Remember that year where they ran one, two, three, four for like the entire race? I don't think we'll see that again, but I'm not saying it's out of the question. Just keep your eye on the SHR Brigade and keep your eye on the manufacturer relationships. Ford will work together. Chevy will work together. Toyota will work together. But when it comes down to the stage ends and when it comes down to the race, they are not going to work together because they are going to go all out for themselves. Can't wait for Talladega this weekend. Always a good show. I'm excited for it. That'll wrap things up for episode 144 of Victory Lane 2.0. If you guys like what you heard here today, please leave me a rating and a review. Subscribe to the podcast. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. If that's Apple, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud. And if we're not, drop me a line at Davy Center on Twitter or on any other social media platform. And I will try to rectify that issue for you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Brock Beard for joining. Thank you to Papa and Mama Siegel for the help in this week's Wayback segment. We will be back next week with a wonderful guest from the world of NASCAR. I do not have it officially, officially booked yet, but I have talked with this individual and they are excited about the prospect of coming on. Let me just say, good afternoon, everyone. Marinate on that one for a little bit. Catch you on the flip side. Have a good one, guys.